Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Uh, this poem is called Este Mundo, and uh, it's for a wonderful Mexican poet who also happens to be a translator of my work named Pura Lopez Colome. It was written for her 50th birthday. Este Mundo. Este mundo. She lives in Cuernavaca, um, under the volcano, like they say. Well, she lives sort of above the volcano, but who's counting? This world with its sounds and that other with its othering, where words then solid things melt into sounds. Enough? This writing inside the lids of the eyes. Enough? This table enough? These wars enough? A sip enough, a glimpse, oars spinning, the broken notes enough, the drunken boats, and the idol asleep in the mountain, his nurse's milk on his lips. He's dreaming of peacocks, meteors, pyromanic moths, dreaming of serpents and pyramids, worlds hanging from clouds, the wine jug, the lover's spine, and fire as it claims the edges of a page. Bastante. This world in the fold of an echo. You can hear them beneath the mown field, the rest of songs. Untitled October 2002. Ava Brown advised me in a dream to always be kind to dogs. So I gazed at the world with fresh eyes, the rust on the apple, the sliding sun, our hard-won freedoms here at home. Then a famous physicist proudly proclaimed that this century would be no less exciting than the last, not a dream. So I set a match to my obras completas, all 13 pages, that sad house of paper, and let loose the finch from its cage. Next, a woman in red, not undressing, said, stop playing the flaming fool, But how exactly is that done? So I summoned my dog, name of Bob, gnarly dog, tossed him a glabrous bone, told him he was not alone. So ran into problems with that poem when it was being translated into French. And the woman translating it, it was perfectly bilingual, said, what about gnarly? Uh, and uh, I immediately sent an email to my daughter in New York and said, what about gnarly? And she gave me the 13 different nuanced definitions of gnarly. The, the surfer one about the gnarly wave and, uh, and of course, gnarly hair, conventional meaning, and then the, the valley girl meaning of gnarly. It was a sensational. Uh, so I just sent them all off to my French translator and said, take your pick. Uh, <laughs> It's a, a gnarly problem. Uh, una noche. I'm not sure why I, I refer here to El Presidente, perhaps because of his fluency in the Spanish tongue. Una noche. Then El Presidente, uncoiling his tongue, Quote, you cannot stop time, but you can smash all the clocks, unquote. 
and so seeking paradise we have burned the bright house to the ground, a necessary act. We have invented glass and ground a dark lens, and in the perilous night we continue to dance. The tarantella, the tango, the pasadoble, and the jig, the bunny hop, the Cadillac, the Madison and Sarabond, mazurka and the jerk, the twist on tabletops, rolling our eyes, flailing our limbs. It's how we keep time. Our feet never stop. Night gardening. A reader writes to complain that there are no cell phones in my poems. So here is one. Its body chrome, its face a metallic blue. It's neither transmitting nor receiving. A woman, a woman from Duluth requests that I cease sending secret messages to her in my poems. This I will do forthwith. <clears throat> and the blackbird at evening, she says, you have misrepresented the river there where it runs, or there where it turns by the home oak and the bed of winter hyacinths. This I will correct. A recent letter unsigned. You've mangled the citations from Holderlin, and none will mistake your skies for those of Dominikos Theotokopoulos. Opine's a good citizen, concerned parent. Your nefarious syntax has infected my firstborn. Have you a heart of stone? And the poem from its homeless home writes of blind sight and silence, the blackbird at evening, nothing you can see. Uh, this, uh, the last poem in the book, which com comprises a brief last section of the book, is called Dream of a Language That Speaks. And um, it's a, um, dedicated to um, Yoshimazu Gozo, um, a great, extraordinary Japanese poet, performer, uh, Photographer, um, his his own performances are almost indescribable. In that, often he will work on a metal scroll uh, as he uh, a, a beautiful pictorial scroll as he's performing, and he will be beating up incising or whatever you would call it a picture into that scroll um, as he recites sometimes for multiple voices, and the actual use of this hammer on the scroll will maintain a kind of beat in relation to the poem. Sometimes he performs also with his wife. Um, uh, quite an amazing figure. Uh, unlike a lot of contemporary performance poetry, a lot of Japanese performative poetry also has a kind of ancient character to it. Um, uh, the way some Russian recitation does, um, so that you feel something very old and very new all at once. <clears throat> Hello, Gozo. Here we are. The spinning world, has it come this far? Hammering things, speeching them, nailing the anthrax to its copper plate, matching the object to its name, the star to its chart. 
The sirens, the howling machines are part of the music, it seems, just now, and helices of smoke engulf the astonished eye, and then our keening selves goes a world between voice and echo. So few and so, so many have we come this far, sluicing ink onto snow. I'm tired, Gozo, tired of the us, not us, of the factories of blood, tired of the multiplying suns, and tired of colliding with the words as they appear without so much as a by your leave, without so much as a greeting. The more suns, the more dark. Is it not always so? And in the gathering dark, ghostly tall, and ghostly small, making their small talk as they pause and they walk on a path of stones, as they walk and walk, skeining their tails, testing the dust. Higher up they walk. There's a city below, pinpoints of light. High up they walk, flicking dianthus, mountain berries, Turks caps with their sticks. Can you hear me, asks tall. Do you hear me, asks small. Question, pursuing question. And they set out their lamp amid the stones. Um, that ghostly tall and ghostly small in the mountains, of course, is a reference to Paul Ceylon's uh, conversation in the mountains. Um, uh, an, a, a, a prose piece he gave on poetics. Uh, the figures in German were Herr Klein and Herr Gross. The, uh, this new manuscript actually begins with um, a poem from the old manuscript, um, which found its way into a series, that, uh, and it's called The Classical Study. I asked the Master of Shadows wherefore and where from, but he said that art was short and life was long said, let us praise those flames that consume the day stone by stone and the lilac by the barn and the hours when you were young and the mother and the father tongue. Curled by fire the leaves of grass, buckled the roof beam, shattered the wagon's haft. Ash flecks in the wind's swell. Have you, have you forgotten the whistling of the stones, the heave and shift of the windrows? So I asked the master of shadows, about the above and the below, the this and the that, the first and the last. But he said, I am no master, only a shadow. And he laughed. The Classical Study 3. The master has forgotten his hat. Without his hat, he cannot fly. Without his hat, his dreams escape up. Without his hat, he cannot tip his hat to that woman passing by whom he remembers from somewhere as in a dream, a room in a dream, or maybe a beach, a beach by the sea, blindingly white, hatless, he and she. Uh, there's a great Brazilian modernist poet named João Cabral de Meloneto who died um, a few years ago. I was in Sao Paulo introducing an anthology um, uh, of Brazilian poetry that I helped edit and translate a few years ago, many years ago now. 
And uh, the person, my co-editor said, let's call up João Cabral. He won't see us, but it'll be interesting to see what he says on the phone. Normally, late in life, João Cabral, the same thing happened with Bob Creeley. Uh, João Cabral would answer the phone and do some variation on, I'm afraid João Cabral is not at home. Um, And uh, so there started a little sequence. I was thinking of Bob and I having the same experience uh, with uh, resonant experience, sort of Fernando Pessoa-like experience. Um, Difference. You answered the phone and said, I am not at home. No, you answered the phone and said, Joao Cabral is not at home. A difference. Difference too. Answering the phone, Cabral would say, Joao Cabral is not at home. I don't know. He's gone, perhaps never to return. There are two little prose pieces. One is called Lazure. I returned a book to John Ashbery last week. It was one inch by one inch by one inch, a perfect cube. Gee, Michael, you've had that book for 12 years. What took you so long? (laughs) It was surprisingly dense, I answered, almost as if nine-tenths of the universe's dark matter were packed inside. Also, that azure cover put me off for a good while. I thought it might be a symbolist work, something about swans and ice... And you know how I've detested swans ever since that incident. (coughs) Did she ever recover? asked John. Outwardly she's fine, but really she's never been the same. Well, I'm not entirely myself today either, said John, but I'm happy to have that book back. I've always liked that strange title. What do you think it means? What I did not say, what I did not say was that within this tiny book, this one inch by one inch by one inch cube, there was but one word. It was not even an unusual word, rather one people once used all the time as a call or a greeting, mornings or evenings, or else to express a certain delight, for example, in the color of a lover's eyes or the grace of his or her form. A word, then, with no specific referent or single meaning, one often simply meant to intimate concord or mutual understanding, agreement or solidarity. (coughs) This word had been banned from public utterance for many years, but it had subsequently, as often happens, worked its way back into common parlance until the point where the ban itself became a subject of ridicule and those who had imposed the ban were reviled where formerly they had been cheered and celebrated. Is it possible to conceive that this almost invisible book with that one word in it may have been responsible for this turn of affairs? The Counter Sky. Um, um, I was reading uh, a translation of a poem by uh, a poet named Roger Gilbert Leconte, uh, not very well known in the United States, quite a beautiful poet, uh, who was a member of a group with uh, René Dumas called Le Grand Jeu, The Great Game. Uh, 
and um, um, it shot me back to this is this company in the interesting way it shot me back to an uh, an, uh, an event in Paris in 1984. My wife is an architect and designs libraries and has done a lot of work out here, in fact, for Berkeley. And uh, she was involved with the design of the new San Francisco Main Library, and she wanted to visit the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. And um, we, someone said, oh, you can probably get in without an appointment, which is a mistake. Well, I, anyway went to the uh, porter's lodge in the front, and fortunately the guy was totally drunk, so he's just saying. Um, but then I got to the next gatekeeper, who was a, um, a woman of stern mien, and um, she said, uh, and I explained to her that um, my wife wanted to see the Bibliothèque Nationale, and she was involved with the design of San Francisco Library, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, monsieur, but it's impossible, um, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in my best formal French, which is not very best, um, I said, of course I understand, madam. It's, it's a shame uh, because we have come all the way from California, but I perfectly understand. And, uh, and so she took that as an appropriate uh, sort of homage and um, went and got a, a young woman to come out. A beautiful young woman appeared and said, come on, let's go. Uh, and we started talking. She found out I was a poet, and she said, have you ever read Roger Gilbert Le Comte? And I said, some. Uh, she said, great poet. So the merging of this poem, that's too much of a story, but it's better than the poem, I think. Uh, the Counter Sky. A young woman of the book directed my gaze toward the counter sky, Behind her, there were books piled up, miles and miles of books piled high, and below, the scholars bent to their tasks, reading by the light of green-tinted lamps. I stared at the coffee in my cup, the coffee in my empty cup, and asked, would you like a sip of coffee from this cup? And she said yes, and drink she did from my cup's perfect emptiness. Uh, I Fell Asleep. This is a prose piece for a wonderful novelist named Howard Norman. Um, and uh, I was reading a short story of Howard's and uh, in a sort of summer heat, and I was lying down, and uh, I fell asleep. But the story continued. Um, just it turned into a dream story. I fell asleep for Howard Norman. I fell asleep while reading, but the story continued. I ironed a shirt in my room, a thousand shirts in my room, then put one on, sky blue. I descended to the hotel veranda, took the slender hand of the widow Krista Train, and onto the frozen bay we danced. We danced out to the ship caught in the ice, hull stove by the ice, deck tilted to the west, mainmast snapped, name in gold lettering, the young republic still visible on the uplifted stern. Perfect silence enveloped the ship. 
When the ice had first closed in and taken its grip, he remembers, the ship had emitted heaving groans and sharp cracking sounds. Eventually, these diminished in intensity, then subsided entirely. What had at first been a source of great curiosity for the shore dwellers quickly became a matter of indifference, a thing scarcely noticed. After stripping the ship of the goods, of its goods and witnessing its slow demise, people had grown almost apathetic toward the looming remains, however impressive the shadows they cast upon the ice in the changing winter light. We danced round that ship, we too, danced and danced back toward the shore, the veranda, the hotel, the lamps, though by then we were out of step. Um, coincidentally with winning this or being given this award this Wallace Stevens Award by the American Academy I had been trying to bring some voice of Stevens into my work as as a homage um, without writing Wallace Stevens poems obviously Um, there are enough of those Um, but not too many uh, and this sequence called Say, S-A-Y, um, uh, is really a homage to uh, Stevens. Say, say she is the queen of Bollywood, of special seeming, and tell us too that Mr. Speaks is silent, and how the tattoo master, Tuttle, is Caravaggio for our time. Say that the music we heard was a real thing, formed of ebony and earth and unrehearsed, and that it caused the drama on the screen to swell, making the unreal come to be in ways we could only envy. Tell us what we most and least wanted to know of who and what we are beneath right now. (coughs) The first one is actually dedicated to an American poet named Gustav Sobin, who... um, uh, we were doing a festschrift for Gustav, which he didn't live to see published, but he uh, he was dying very suddenly of a terrible cancer and did manage to hear the... Um, someone came and read the poems in the homage to him. Say, too, <clears throat> say that an old man in his garden considers the mysteries of clover and vetch while a helicopter passes overhead, scything the afternoon air. Say that he has known these things before, clover and vetch, helicopter and the ditch, again and again into which people fall. His memory is perfectly clear and serves no good, no purpose at all. He has has seen things before, the fly in the bottle, the indeterminate will. Santa Muerte, Saint Death, we pray to you to swallow our breath. Just a few more. Um, poem called Red Sea. Um, red letter C. Which was named after, it's, uh, it's a kind of homage to uh, Itzhak Babel, um, who, of course, has a, there's a collection of his uh, prose called Red Cavalry. Babel being a Jew who rode with the Cossacks. Never a good idea. Uh, 
as he found out. I asked the master of silence why he rode horseback with the Cossacks, and he said, to peer into the eye of heaven, perhaps through the eyes of death. I asked the master of silence, a Jew, what he saw as he rode, and he spoke of street lamps and taverns and indolence, water mills and ceaseless rains, bright cherries in heaps, churches in flames, slaughtered oxen and racing clouds, bent women gathered by a well. So daybreak and nightfall and my silence, no heaven awaits. Fragment after Dante. And I saw myself in the afterlife of rivers and fields, among the wandering souls and light-flecked paths. There I was amazed to find the damned and the innocent commingled so, torturers and victims, masters, sycophants and slaves, idling arm in arm, chatting about nothing, about the fullness and ripeness of nothing, the pleasures of the day and of the hearth fires to follow in the evening calm. And they turned to me as one, and I heard their words, their calls, each syllable, each phrase, but could not make them out. And I saw myself struggling to wake, howling and foaming like a dog, biting at empty air. Uh, and this is uh, called Second Fragment, again after Dante. And she clasped my arm and said, You, my son, who have lingered too long among the dead, go and return to the lighted shore for those brief moments you have left there among the hypocrites, the torturers and deceivers who've locked our republic in their thrall, as I'm told, for that far I cannot see from this clouded place. Then before my eyes her face transformed from old to young, that one I'd known in earliest youth, and disappeared from view. Last short poems. Say, five. Say that a spider with a death's head crawls into your bed and offers to make love. How explain that you are done with love? And what of death? Poem, don't be so strange. <laughs> Untitled October 06. That's now. <coughs> We're up to the present. <laughs> An unremarkable house like Spinoza's seems perfect in form. Its steeply pitched roof, four chimneys, shutters open, bare winter elms, worn slender path before the door. True that he and his lathe did not stay long in this house near Leiden. True as well that it tells us nothing, being of brick and perfectly silent, perfectly finite and fixed. 
he lived there for a while and moved on. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.